0: Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is an absolute comedic giant uh, in our neighboring and newly reopened border,
1: right, Ron? Correct. We are no longer being pistol whipped for crossing with our AstraZeneca vaccine.
0: And I'm talking about the great Ron James, Canada's probably, Ron, I mean, you're top two or three on the all-time list of stand-ups in Canada. I think that's a fair characterization.
1: I will take that assessment. I broke trail uh, 25 years ago, um, stringing my trap line, if you'll pardon the Northern metaphor, around the frozen lip of Lake Superior, that Longfellow called Gitchy Goomy in the dead of February. And uh, it was, uh, I stepped out of the clubs after five years See, and I'd been to Los Angeles. I lived there for three years when I was an actor working for, uh, I went down to do a series we created at Second City in Toronto for Ron Howard's company, Imagine TV. And we were in Newsweek on Tuesday, cancelled on Thursday. And on Monday, I was pulling a rotten bush at a Robert Urick's front yard with my buddy's landscaping company. And uh, Mr. Urich, who just played Jake Spoon on Lonesome Dove, walked out the front door. And my buddy Jay pointed to me, a troll in the hole covered in mud, said, that's my buddy, Ron. He's an actor, too. Uh, So chasing the elusive American sitcom dream uh, another lifetime ago, sired my Canadian one. And uh, got a lot of commercials down there, was the spokesman for Texas tourism, a lot of guest spots on television shows back then. But moved back home. And when I moved back to Toronto, I shifted the paradigm and became a stand up.
0: An incredible career that you're still very much in the midst of, and of course, I want to talk about your new memoir, All Over the Map, Rambles and Ruminations from the Canadian Road, which just came out. But Ron, where I'd like to start is you come out of one of the great Aberdeen proving grounds, farm system, if you will, of comedy, and that's Second City. So I'd love to start with remembrances of Second City, and what is it about that? particular institution that has produced so many brilliant comedic minds? Uh,
1: Well, boy, big question. Uh, When I started, SCTV was on the air and our icons were on TV once a week. John Candy, Eugene Levy uh, just broke the record for Emmy Awards with Schitt's Creek, Catherine O'Hara, Andrea Martin, Rick Moranis, Dave Thomas and Joe Flaherty. And they'd be down in the theater all the time. So you had to aspire to a certain standard that was visible on TV weekly, but there was no better place to learn the craft of improvisational ensemble comedy and character-driven comedy. And uh, I think it's produced so many, uh, so many great creatively comedic minds because of those standards, because it just wasn't the cheap joke you were allowed to go for. And it was because of you know, dudes like Del Close, who had phrases such as always play to the top of your intelligence. So there was uh, a mandate for intelligence as well as I mean, you could be goofy, you could be slapsticky if you wanted to. But throughout the entire two hour show that we developed through improvisational uh, uh, comedy via suggestions from the audience, uh, you built an eclectic buffet of scenes, two-person scenes, cast ensemble scenes, maybe a single piece uh, with very minimal props, chairs, you know, occasional hat or a goofy character scarf or whatnot. But uh, it you were always encouraged to elevate your game. And for me, uh, eventually moving into stand-up, uh, I took those lessons with me to the solo spot. Uh, I like to say though that uh, an improvisational troupe is akin to uh, half a dozen Bolsheviks trying to pick the color of a tractor on a communist farm while stand up as an enlightened dictatorship. Uh, and if one uh, has the opportunity as we did at Second City to take direction and hard tough directions whether from the director himself or other cast members, then you learn to jettison what doesn't work early on. And you learn to be cruel about cutting the jokes that aren't mm, getting strong legs. And I think that's a crucial uh, element uh, in stand-up. So uh, I think that's really standards and an incredible work ethic. Everybody brings their own... um, work ethic to a second city cast. Uh, Some tend to be more productive than others. Some have different strengths than others. Some become actors, some become writers, some go into producing. Uh, But uh, because it was such an eclectic collection of diverse personalities, all working for the same goal, uh, which was the integrity of the scene and the satisfaction of the audience, uh, I think that translated very well to television and film.
0: And you mentioned that sort of original monster lineup of seven on SCTV. Who were some of the folks during your time there who you were with?
1: Uh, well, uh, Donnie Lake, who's on uh, uh, Space Force now uh, opposite Steve Carell. Donnie and I uh, did a lot of work together. Uh, John Hempel, who wrote for um, uh, SCTV in a day day and worked with, uh, uh eugene levy on maniac mansion um uh, and um uh, deb mcgrath uh, who created the show that brought me to los angeles she's married to the great improviser colin mockery i went through the touring company with her and uh then uh, of course when i was a senior member in the tour code, traveling the highways and byways of the province of ontario in the dead of winter battling blizzards a yeti wouldn't wander in order to get to some far point of frontier for a gig in some hillbilly holler uh, there was a young man that stepped into the van after finishing his high school exams. He carried a, uh, a case of Coke, a bottle of Tums, a soccer ball, and the collected works of Harold Pinter. And that was the young Mike Myers. So Mike was a young fella, uh, joined the company. And we were already seasoned veterans who'd been in-country, walking point in the wilds of the, of the Canadian North for two years. And he was always dedicated to his craft right from
0: the get-go it's uh, it's nice to see his trajectory fantastic stuff y- your reputation is uh, you could almost say sort of the james brown of com- canadian <laughs> com- of canadian comedy the hardest the, h- the hardest working man <laughs> and you drive from every corner to every corner of what is a vast vast country Where did that come from, Ron, that that determination to not only play the biggest halls in Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver and Calgary, but also, as you referenced, those little hole in the wall places, you know, that may be hours from what, you know, someone like me in New Yorker would call civilization.
1: Well, um, uh, once again, excellent question. Uh, I think it was the three years uh, that I put in Los Angeles, of which one of those years was um, abject uh, unemployment trying to land a gig. Uh, Chasing the American sitcom dream sired my Canadian one. And, uh, I had a, a daughter at the time who was 18 months when we moved and almost five when we came home and we got another one when we got here and, uh, we got another one. <laughs> we we had another one when we got here and, uh, I, I was reading a lot of Joseph Campbell at those, in those days here of a thousand faces, follow your bliss, those catchphrases. And I, I, I think the the catchphrase of the enlightenment that the individual is responsible for their own happiness um, really took hold in that carnivores arena of Los Angeles of nonstop competition and even though I was the spokesman for Texas tourism and got a lot of guest spots and things there was never enough to uh, plan for the future you're always just three or four months ahead I was a journeyman actor and I wanted control of my career I no longer wanted to wait for somebody else to empower me I wanted to uh, captain my own ship. And so when I came back and started in in stand-up, I honed my craft for five years in the clubs and began to break trail. And I got a Jobian work ethic from my father, who still at the age of 85, before he died, was still trying to, was still working on the home that he bought with uh, a telephone company man's salary. I came from a working class environment and um, a good neighborhood, and everybody seemed willing to put their shoulder to the mule and plow to make tomorrow better than today. And uh, I had mouths to feed and a mortgage to pay, and I didn't want my life to be dependent on uh, casting director's decision as to whether or not I was capable or not. I wanted to make sense of the world on my own terms. I wanted to connect the dots and the chaos we're all walking through in the language of laughs. And there's nothing, there's no greater charge I get. And looking down in an audience, uh, uh, fifteen, whether it's 1,500, 2,000 people, 5,000 people at the casinos, like Caesars in Windsor, Ontario, or Rama here with 5,000, and hearing laughter and seeing people laugh. It's just the joy I get from the work. And there's that great moment in Seinfeld's uh, documentary years ago called Comedian, where Orny Adams, the the B story is whining at the club that his friends or his family don't respect him because he's not famous yet. And Jerry says, you're doing what you want, aren't you? And that's it. I strung my trap line from the East coast to the West coast and played whistle stops as well as big rooms because everybody deserves to get a good show. And I love what I'm doing. And, um, they paid five times what a set in the club did. And here's another thing. I'm not quite sure about New York and Los Angeles if the, if the, the network aficionados and the powers that be are going to the clubs to hunt talent anymore. Sometimes people tell me they don't show up that much anymore. Uh, but uh, I know that in, in America, one can ride a trajectory from standup obscurity to 40 foot billboards of your head in the four corners of the world because American pop culture is exported to those corners. You've got 375 million people down there. You've got 37 million people up here in the Great White North. You can have half the country of America not enjoying your act at all and still have six times the population of Canada thinking you're great. So that's another reason why I played as many places as I did and went at it as hard as I did, because I knew that uh, I would have to cover a lot of bases in
0: order to make the living I wanted. Great, great answer. So one of the things that people say about you, Ron, is that you have figured out a way to talk about sensitive subjects in a way that's still funny, but does not cross that line, which of course is subjective, but you know, you could argue that in our culture today, certainly here, it's never been harder in some respects to be funny. Talk about your observations of how culture's evolved. Uh, We're watching the Dave Chappelle thing play out now. Um, And it's gotten harder to talk about things that comedians used to be able to have free reign over. But you seem to be able, always throughout your career, to be able to sort of know where that line is.
1: Well, first and foremost, it's the comedian's job to speak truth to power, right? That was that was the ethos of second city and it's been the ethos of our calling since the great uh rebel voices of the 60s like Pryor and carlin and prior to that bruce uh began to tip the apple cart but i never wanted to lose a room and that's why i'll do a 100 minute to two hour show without a break because i like to Stretch an eclectic buffet. Like I've said previously about the Second City shows, how there's a different kind of scene all the time. And so I land on a lot of different bases in my set. And you'll bump up against censorship in the networks where censorious lawyers vet your satire and network apparatchiks who drank the corporate Kool Aid will exact executive dictates. You're always going to bump up against that. And it all depends on how far you're willing to go as a comedian, too. I mean, what's your comfort zone? I think Dave Chappelle's comfort zone is a hell of a lot different than mine. Uh, And uh, I tip my hat to him. He's so brave. He's such an iconoclast. And I don't have the luxury to polarize an audience. But that being said... I still poke the gorilla in the cage as creatively as I can. And I charted my course shortly after 9-11, I think. That was my first big challenge. How am I going to deal with this given the sensitivities and the terrible tragedy that occurred and the psychological impact it had on everybody? And I found that if I charted my course with some righteous anger, married to uh, a compassionate route through that very uh, tragic terrain, I found something at the end that was palpable for people. That was a big growth ring for me. Uh, uh, But uh, recently, I mean, it's fractured into so many disparate and conflicting and vociferous tribes. I mean, mean, that Mason-Dixon line in America uh, is uh, a huge line to cross. I don't know how comedians do it. Uh, But in Canada, when we were watching from the bleachers, the orange mutant uh, take a country to hell in a handcart with his contemptible polarities and paranoia uh, I just felt it was the American id run amok and uh, he, I was able to call him out for what he'd said but I will say the CBC uh, cut a, a great joke of mine that killed from coast to coast small towns big towns uh, uh, Donald Trump said women who get abortion should be punished begged to differ the only woman who should be punished was Donald's mother for not having one And uh, that's, uh, and there was another issue that we had here uh, when, uh, and it still exists. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the uh, horrific discoveries of residential school uh, graves of kids who were plucked from their families as late as the, from the 1880s on to 1970s for Christ's sake. And, uh, but prior to that water, dirty water was an issue on these reserves and I know it's the same in South Dakota too I read a lot of Chris edges uh, and his book days of destruction uh, uh, that was uh, illustrated by Sacco is brilliant uh, death of the liberal class uh, Empire of illusion I used him as a text an awful lot of times when I was writing my stuff and um, you know he's a fiery Presbyterian from the old school of shaking up society uh, however I I uh, I said that look, um, uh, yeah, it was an issue about giving our water away. I said we're going to give our water away. Uh, you know, maybe we could give clean water to some of these people in the northern boreal gulags living on reservations. You'd be safer drinking water from a pissed-in puddle at the Dissue dump. If brown water were coming out of the taps in some tonied high end corner of Canada, it'd be fixed faster than a horny horse in the Mountie's musical ride. And if you always land. On the joke, I find that you can chart your course and tip the apple cart without losing the room. And I always like the way words trip off the tongue and tickle the ear as well as the funny bone. It took a long time to develop that style. And I'm careful not to use it too much because it's a flavor that gets redundant. But uh, I think that's how I've been able to do it. And then be self-deprecating at times as well. Like I've got attention deficit hyperactive disorder that I got assessed a couple of years ago, and I said, "Why did I pay sixteen hundred bucks to a shrink for that?" When I was seven, I was lost for three and a half weeks chasing a friggin' bee. Uh, and then you can be physical, uh, and uh, you know, there's so many of your of your countrymen I admire uh, in stand up, and so many Canadians did because America had a predisposition for the rebel voice our countries developed differently. Uh, Canada's was a benign delivery from the womb of mother Britain, while America's was a cracked baby breech birth that chewed off its own umbilical cord. It's incredible. And I think because you had, despite the uh, oppressive nature of the Patriot Act that came into effect, and I, I don't believe has been rescinded lately, uh, but uh, the 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 rebel voice is part and parcel of the American ethos which of course during COVID has become perverted to the point where me trumps we but if me trumps we everybody loses I think that's where libertarian values um, really compromise the intelligence of the scientific community and of course when you throw the biblical mix in there you know some helmet haired diamond crusted teetotal and evangelist who wants to be in heaven singing harmony with the Carter family and Johnny Carter Johnny Cash rather than still being alive, I don't know. I know if that's those guys are going to be running heaven's hallways, you can call up a demon from Hell's Hot Quarter to drive a poker in my ass right now because I'm not going. Anyway, that's my little run. That's fantastic.
0: So let, let's stay here because it's such an interesting subject, uh, I, I think. One of the old-time comedians who just passed a couple years ago who I always loved and got to know a little bit was Don Rickles.
1: Uh, oh, Rickles, Rickles, Rickles. You knew Rickles?
0: A little bit, yeah, I did. He
1: hosted my first gala at Just for Laughs. So you tell your story, then I'll tell mine.
0: So I'll give you mine. So I've seen him a number of times, and uh, we were once together. He was with his wife, and I was by myself. We were down in Battery Park. One of my old friends uh, early in my career was a lovely woman named Anne Belcove. Anne was the superintendent of Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island and work for the federal government That's and cool. it was great. And when I would go there, the only way you can get to Statue of Liberty or Ellis Island is this big ferry boat, the circle line. But when I was going there for a meeting and they had this little coast guard boat, not fancy at all but a little boat that would come and pick you up and take you to Ellis Island for the meeting with Anne. So I was there one day and waiting for the boat and who is standing next to me, but Don Rickles and his wife. And he was talking to one of Ann's people, and he was saying uh, he was just in Israel. And I, he looks at me, and he figures out that I'm Jewish also, which doesn't <laughs> t- t- doesn't take that much figuring. And he says, "Yeah, I was just in Israel with Teddy Kollek, the mayor. The only problem with that place there's too many Jews there, which was some, <laughs> which is something that only Rickles could say. Um, Rickles. And his ability to joke about everyone and everything." was unmatched, but I wonder aloud, and I wanna hear your story also, uh, but I wonder aloud, could Don Rickles work today?
1: Oh, I don't, I don't think so with the sensitivities being what they are, but I will say, why he was able to get away with that was his sweetness came through. He wasn't mean, he wasn't, you know, and extremely overweight people would sit in the front row, uh, of his shows, knowing full well that they were in for it. Um, uh, I mean, his, And people always said that about Rickles too, how sweet and generous he was. I mean, this guy who honed his craft in the smoke choke clubs of Vegas for wise guys who'd just come back to cut the edge with a few laughs after dropping a body in the desert. Uh, Rickles, uh, and he was... I I never wrote anything. That's what I've learned later. I I mean, he was like Billy Connolly in that respect, right? It was all freeform. uh, But you could see him get his character. So I'm doing Just for Laughs, and it's my second gala. And uh, Just for Laughs, for your listeners, I'm sure you know, it's the biggest comedy festival in the world in Montreal, and everybody who's anybody has played there. And Rickles is the host of my gala So in those days, I'm doing a bit about camping. I said, camping's fun in the daytime. As soon as the sun goes down, though, everything that eats meat wakes up. I was pretty safe. I camped beside some Germans. God bless them, but their accent will scare anything. I don't care where you are. Hiking the Cabot Trail or rafting the belly of the Grand Canyon. You hear, ich bin, the die in der Rauch, das the Altenant. You're going to be making a beeline for Switzerland. You and the kids run for the border with the Von Trapp family. I'll hold them off anyway i come backstage i got a nice you know nice round of applause the audience loved it i come backstage and rickles is waiting for me he's laughing and he comes right up to my head comes right up to my face <laughs> and he says that was a great set kid i never got my first break until i was 38 years old <laughs> how old are you i said 41 his face dropped from a smile to a frown you'd lose, you'd use for a widow standing in front of the closed casket of her dead husband. He looks at me, slaps my cheek and says, you're finished.
0: Ah, that's great.
1: I go to his dressing room. He's sitting there with two high balls of ice water, tuxedo open. I got into his dressing room. I wanted to get my poster autograph. I give him the poster. He writes, funny is as funny does and you are Don Rickles. Six months after that, I was stuck in a blizzard a Yeti wouldn't wander, driving to a northern point of British Columbia uh, that had once been a three-lane road that with the blizzard I was in became a snow-crusted goat path a Taliban refugee with a winning lottery ticket wouldn't cross. And that was the sole collateral I took with me. It was Rickles writing that on my poster. And that's the kind of stuff comedians pack in their knapsack for the long journey we're on i know there's a lot of career avarice and i know everybody wants to get to the top nobody does i I, I mean not everybody does but I, i i was thankful to rickles for letting me know that the road
0: i chose to roam was the right one that's a great, great story. So you mentioned Montreal and I've been lucky enough to go to Just for Laughs. And I think a lot of people in the comedy community certainly know about it. I think they all do, and many outside that immediate circle. But talk about Just for Laughs. You had such a great run there going back to, I think, that one man show, The Road, Road Between My Years way back when. Uh, but so many great moments up there. Talk about it, because for those of us that don't know about it, it really is the biggest comedy festival in the world, right in Montreal, Canada.
1: Absolutely. And uh, we first played it with Second City in 1988. I remember I was in the improv troupe then, and that's when I sat to watch all these comedians. I said, these guys are incredible. I loved it. You know, guys like I saw guys like Robert Schimmel before he passed away. You know, great acts. Uh, uh, and Reagan from uh, from Boston, great Boston acts that show up there. Anyway, uh, I did row between my ears there. I was asked to do that special in 2003. And uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC, the number one outfit in Canada, said, we'd like you to do it as a special. So thanks to Just for Laughs inviting me to do my first one-man show there, Uh, I was picked up by CBC and I did nine one hour specials with them and five years of my own series. So 14 years I was with them. And uh, although I never toured uh, nationally with uh, Just for Laughs, uh, I decided to run my own trap line instead, because as I told you earlier, I wanted to, uh, uh, I wanted to captain my own ship. I didn't want to be on a bill with five other people. And the payday would be better if I was just by myself too. So, uh, but just for laughs, to go there and meet your heroes. Uh, besides Rickles, I had an opportunity to uh, thank Billy Connolly for inspiring me. I saw Billy Connolly's first one-man show during a, a very uh, lean and trying time of unemployment in Los Angeles. And I watched this tartan wizard, this, this shaman, uh, the Glaswegian shaman just own the stage. I believe Whoopi Goldberg had seen him at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and brought him to L.A. And this 90 minute special, it was an epiphany, really. And I told him that I said, boy, seeing see in your first HBO special wasn't my St. Paul on the road to Damascus comedic epiphany. He looked at me and said, geez, I hope you don't open with that. But uh, I asked him how he became famous. He, he said uh, how a Glaswegian welder became an international sensation And he got pissed off at me. He pulled a cigar from his mouth and he said, that's a question about fame. To hell with fame. Just keep singing your song. That was in 2007. And um, I kept singing my song because, you know, uh, like Britain, Canada, we always measure the worth of our own by how successful we've been elsewhere. And living now. Next door to Lady Liberty. I mean, we're so 80% of the country lives so close to the American border. We're looking up Lady Liberty's skirt. And the siren song of her juju has been uh, an intoxicating narcotic for many years. And uh, all of us go down there and uh, look at the exports we've had. I mean, Jim Carrey, Mike Myers, uh, uh, to name a few, William Shatner, everybody goes because you guys invented television, period uh and uh you do it so well and movies you do it you just do them well and the population makes a big difference and it's a machine it's a business it's an industry and uh it's uh it's a hell of a better payday too but to decide to uh listen to billy conley and sing my song uh i began to believe that perhaps The experiences I had both in America and in Canada as a stand-up and down there chasing the sitcom dream in that carnivores arena of Los Angeles, where, by the way, I started my first one-man show up and down in Shaky Town, One Man's Journey Through the California Dream, when I used to hump my poetry (laughs) I used to, not poetry, but prose up to Ventura Boulevard Coffee House amateur nights and throw my name in the hat with 30 other hopefuls. And I'm telling you, brother, I swear to Christ, I must have shared the stage with the illegitimate spawn of the Charles Manson clan who wandered down from their Chatsworth warrants looking for the love that Charlie never gave. And I mean, you know, you got to be on your game when you followed somebody who claims they've been abducted by aliens and has the scars to prove it. Uh, but down there at these coffee houses back in the mid 90s, when it was just kicking off, I had people from all walks of life come up to me and say, hey, what you're writing about resonates for me. And uh, it's the only reason I'm talking to you today it was because I wrote that one man show, brought it back to Canada and pulled the best eight to 10 minutes out of it. Uh, started again uh, 25 years ago, uh, and uh, I remember Barry Julian and I uh, shared our first uh, our first gig together. And he, of course, went down to the states and has been a recipient of half a dozen Peabody awards as the uh, as the producer of the um, of the Colbert shows. So we're always hopping the border, always cross pollinating. But it was the the, uh, the competition that was inherent in the American pursuit of the American dream that inspired my Canadian one. And I'll tell you a story about seeing and meeting Americans for the first time. When I was a kid, um, I'm just up the ocean from you where I was raised in Nova Scotia. We used to go camping when I was a kid with my family and you weren't allowed to touch the canvas walls of our tent trailer when it was raining or it would leak. I don't know if this is going to resonate for New Yorkers. Uh, but, uh, You know, I was always trying to touch it. I mean, today they call it ADHD. Back then they called it, Jesus Christ, there's something wrong with him. But Americans pulled into the campground, driving a 60-foot chrome-plated, hermetically sealed Airstream living unit. I remember being 11 years old, looking at that and thinking, holy Jesus, it's the Jetsons. And then they invited us over and they gave the kids a tray of grape tang. Grape tang. I hadn't even seen the orange stuff yet. And that night when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, That American family plugged a color TV into the side of their Airstream trailer, and we watched America take one giant leap for mankind. How incredibly cool was that? They could plug a TV into the side of their trailer, and I wasn't even allowed to touch the walls of mine. Fantastic.
0: Fantastic stuff. The guy was cast, bro. It certainly was. So I I love the origins, and let's start to talk a little about all over the map, but I love the origins of the journals that you kept and and i particularly like how you very openly say as digital took over my journals got worse because you know but talk about the the way that we capture information ron the way we spend our time there's a bit in here somewhere but whereas we used to write things down now we scroll through a screen and it's an entirely different way to document. It's an entirely different way to remember things. And to some degree, it's rewired our brains. It has. The, the book is sort of half the old world when you used to just write stuff down and then still some writing, but you know that digital world creeped into your documentarian phase as well that led to the book. Talk about that evolution of all over the map and those journals and how with technology they evolved and how you evolved.
1: Well, first of all, um, the, the social media, it's a dopamine hit and uh, it, it's fleeting calories. It, it doesn't last. And uh, that's why we're constantly going on to the next thing. You're opening up Christmas presents every day. You know, there's such a hit, uh, that dopamine hit. I'm surprised there's not a discharge of fluids. It's ludicrous. And uh, it, um, so, but my journals were necessary in the early days. and I, I love cracking a moleskin, brand new moleskin. And I had my routine. I'd run in the morning and I'd go get, uh, uh, and I'd have my other, my other breakfast. I'd go to a cafe and people just talk to me. In all walks of life from all different places they just opened up and i didn't have the notoriety on television i have today and so i was diligent about that i just felt that it was the hidden boon of the road less traveled and it provided me with a currency far greater than a payday's treasure they were fellow pilgrims on the journey just sharing a window on their world with me i think they just wanted to matter And I think something happens with the brain and the pen. To me, it just, to me, it flows from my brain out my finger far differently with a pen uh, in a journal than it does uh, on a notebook pad uh, on my iPhone. And then suddenly you find yourself now with social media, taking pictures of innocuous objects that you have to document everything, you have to catalog everything, you just can't enjoy a view, you have to take a picture of it. And um, it's uh, it's become uh, it's it's like the pleasure center to the brain is always being ignited. And of course, we're dependent on it now. I mean, the only way I could survive during the pandemic was to stream shows from my living room. Right. And uh, we uh, we did great numbers at New Year's Eve. Uh, you know, we had 5,000 people tune in from all over the world for a set because I used to have my shows on New Year's Eve on CBC at nine o'clock and we'd get 1.5 million viewers every New Year's Eve. And um, then my hair got white and I was shown the door. But that's beside the point. Um, uh, And uh, I, uh, you know, I built up my fan base of 52,000 Facebook friends, which is having an impact as well on uh, on book sales. But I mean, Facebook has redefined the meaning of friendship, hasn't it? I mean, a friend used to be somebody who helped you move a coach on a rainy Sunday afternoon. Now it's somebody you don't know who likes the photograph you took and posted of the pork chops you had for lunch. And uh, social media, the greatest irony, it's invented by a man who is the least social person on the planet that's what I said to somebody I said next time they're interviewing Mark Zuckerberg take a look at his forehead you can see where they rub the antenna down he's an alien he's an alien and they're finally being held to account and damn right they let everything run amok sure they let the election be manipulated absolutely they knew what was happening this whistleblower she's so brave Uh, I mean god bless the whistleblowers
0: huh yeah, no, and, so and, th- and thankfully we have laws to protect them. Yeah, uh, wow.
1: and they hit the, and she just hit her tipping point and said, "To hell with it, this is wrong." And uh, well, yeah, they're like the uh, they're like the great, uh, you know, barons of the gilded era before taxes, aren't they? Who had the run of everything? And uh, so, uh,
0: all right, well, wait a minute. Let us let, stay with the book, though. We're 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 we're, yeah, di- yeah. we're diverging. So we are. You you document years and years, miles and miles on the road. Tell me where the idea, because I read the book, it's so unique and it's such a, it's, the stories are just incredible, but did you always have it mind that you would one day pull this together or was it just sort of something that was a natural evolution?
1: No, I think I'd wished I would, but I never had the courage to. Uh, Words last forever on the page and you have to get it right. And when I'm writing personal stories about my uncle who found sobriety after being on the streets for several years, right? Uh, or when I'm remembering family vacations uh that might have had some conflict and tension about them, or when I'm recounting uh conversations I had with people on the road, particularly Canada's indigenous people, I wanted to do them justice and I wanted to get it right. And uh, Random House approached me. They'd come to a live performance of mine in the, when I was still doing my series and I never had the time. So they approached me and I said yes. And uh, I took several stabs at it, you know. And it, um, it was very difficult at first because I've been so conditioned to uh, write for the laugh and keep it lean. But they encouraged me to uh, honor the narrative. And as I honored the narrative, of the book. Uh, I was able to capitalize on the soul note that I heard singing clear across the big wide open, that wonderful heartline hum of people in place. Uh, and I think it became a better book as a result. I was able to open my heart and not have that. Um, you know, late show Saturday night stand-up survival mode to deal with the drunk and the heckler at the back of the room. I had to jettison that, uh, that um, that welterweight's attitude about surviving for your tight 10 minutes you're doing uh, or your 45. And I've lived those nights uh, many times and you never forget bombing. But this particular journey with the printed word uh, uh, was a uh, a trip to um, a level of maturity I'm I'm glad I finally reached at the age of 63, 64, the end of January. So it helped me grow up and it helped me give thanks for uh, the experiences that I've had, both good and bad in my life.
0: And let's use that word that you just used, journey. One of the quotes that I saw attributed to you was the journey itself was the reward. I love that. I think that captures so much uh, that many of us could learn from, but it really captures the essence of you and what you did with this sort of culminating book, which we won't call the end of your career. You're still very much in the midst of, and you're not old, by the way. Don't give me that bullshit, 62, 63 is young. So don't tell me that's old. But I, I love that journey is the reward it's very true it's not the grail at the end of the trail it's the journey
1: you're on and how could i not help but enjoy the journey or see the worth in the journey when um it was a career that was pulled up from the muck uh traveling the far points of frontier uh and in the dead of winter and and all kinds of shoulder season weather whatever fury nature was throwing down uh and it was um one, one kilometer, one mile at a time, one gig at a time, one theater at a time, they weren't always full. I remember playing one that was had 1500 seats in it and we, had, uh, we only had 137 people. And trust me, <laughs> there was an echo. And I came off, I said, I don't think I can go back and play this theater again. And my producer said, uh, hey, look, they sounded like 350. But every two years since that first gig, we've been selling that theater out. And so, of course, it's about the journey. It has to be. And these signposts, these validations along the road, as as small and as big as Rickles was that he wrote on my poster, funny is as funny does as you, and you are, as much as it is seeing three generations of one family laughing in the front row, or uh, seeing walking into a stage door uh, with the primal wind blowing around your ears and it's minus 40 in Edmonton. And you walk in and the theater's packed. But I had to embrace the journey here because the, as I say, the trajectory to, for one of a better word, Uh, fame, has such a different definition in Canada. It's an oxymoron. Fame to me means I'm drinking for free north of the Canadian tree line. It's it's a different kind of reward. And uh, those of us who pursue this calling here are aware of that. And so many people got frustrated hitting the ceiling in Canada and I don't blame them because we do and so left for greener pastures and hats off as I've said in my book to those who've grabbed their grail in Los Angeles and had the opportunity to actualize their convictions and calling to the greatest extent but you know Jim Carrey himself says uh I hope everybody who wants to get rich and famous does because they'll learn it doesn't make them happy. This work made me happy. I enjoy walking out from behind that curtain, no matter where I am, and knowing that those five pages I wrote this week are going to kill at the top of the show, and I'm going to give somebody laughs for 90 minutes to two hours and that they're going to feel a hell of a lot lighter when they leave than when they walked in that's the comedian's job to lighten the load on the life journey not put another brick on their back that's what we do and that's what i'm happy and grateful i've been allowed
0: to actualize and you do it brilliantly well ron this was so much fun i'm so glad we got a chance to talk you. you were great thanks ron Thank you, brother. Stay well.